From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Total SF Podcast, and welcome to the intro. Eric Kingsbury, our Total SF friend, walked the entire 49-mile scenic drive, got us started. Welcome to the Chronicle. Hey, thanks. I am so happy to have you here for Bullet. Heather Knight's about to join us, a lot to talk about. But first of all, this movie, it's a really good movie that has a reputation for being a little bit confusing. I think we should start out by just kind of sorting it out for the listener. Yeah, I I will say uh, I also found it a little bit confusing to start, but I think I made it through it. So Frank Bullet is a cop. He's this grizzled veteran on the force here at the SFPD, and he has been put in charge of watching after a witness who is about to flip on the mob. Yes, from Chicago. His name is Ross. And then some crazy stuff happens, starting at a Embarcadero kind of sleazy hotel in the double-decker Embarcadero freeway era, and Frank Bullitt uh, is going to have to get in his car and sort this out. Yes, Frank yeah. Bullitt spends a lot of time in his car in this film. He's always five minutes from everything. Well, let's see if the trailer can help us out even more. Detective Lieutenant Frank Bullitt, some other kind of cop. Pity the guy he works for. But when some rare Chicago blood starts spilling in San Francisco, they hand Bullitt the mop. What the hell is going on here? A high-speed pursuit? Two men are killed? An officer in the hospital? A witness almost murdered? One thing we don't touch on, Eric, is the jazz flute scene. We'll have to have another Total SF episode focusing entirely on that. What are your thoughts about jazz flute in Bullet, not talked about as much as the car chase scene, and just jazz flute 1968 in general? I think it's probably the most underrated scene in the whole movie. Yes. <laughs> uh, there, there needs to be more jazz flute in my life. There needs to be more jazz flute in all movies. And uh, I hope that someday soon I can find a place to listen to more jazz flute. Well, you know, Heather and I have a lot of Total SF plans. I think like maybe in our 10-year plan is a jazz flute club. Um, Shorter term, we have a bullet screening coming up. People can go and see the movie with a big crowd. It's going to be a lot of fun. This is the fourth in our uh, Total SF movie night series, 7 p.m. February 27th at the Balboa Theater in San Francisco. Buy tickets at www.cinemasf.com slash balboa. I'm Peter Hartlob here with Eric Kingsbury and Heather Knight, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Total SF podcast and our bullet special. Heather Knight, welcome back. Good to be here. And Eric Kingsbury, welcome back. Hello, thanks. Our 49-mile our friend who brought croissants. Could you? This is a very San Francisco podcast. Bullet is a very San Francisco movie. And uh, this feels like a very San Francisco baked good that I am <laughs> eating right now. Can you tell me a little bit about the croissants? Well, they're RC Co. Cro- croissants, which, you know, 
everyone knows at this point. Uh, they just opened their new location down at Civic Center. And yeah. I, I had to go check it out myself because now I have even easier access. It's very dangerous. Uh, but they really are something special. And if you get the chance, uh, make it down there before they sell out. Or you can always make it up to the Richmond. Where We'd like to require that all future podcasts ask <laughs> croissants. Except Eric brought, I think he brought us or me one of these. And I was flustered or stressed or just super not hungry or whatever. And I didn't eat it. On the Total and SF Walk. It was yeah. the Total SF Walk. And now I'm completely regretting it because this is a fantastic croissant. I, I was very popular. So uh, Heather, unfortunately, couldn't make it. So I brought them for both of you. <laughs> Thank you. And I was able to pass them out to... Uh, the folks on the path, and uh, they seem to love it. So, <laughs> is this bakery on our forty-nine mile scenic? We might have route? to redo it. We might have to redo it. We'll make a little detour. Um, excellent. Well, great start, great baked good, and we're here for Bullet. Um, Bullet, nineteen sixty-eight movie. It's a Steve McQueen movie, very famous for its car chase. Um, I think when you drill a little deeper, it should be very famous for just how much it uses the city. And I just wanted to get first kind of impressions from you guys, what you think about the movie, because you've both watched it recently. I hadn't watched it in like 20 years. What are your thoughts? I don't think I had ever watched it, and I knew we were about to record this podcast, and I thought it was probably a good idea <laughs> that yeah. I do watch it before talking about it. Uh, my father-in-law is visiting from England, and is a huge Steve McQueen fan, so he was so excited to watch this with the family over the weekend, and he has watched it 25 times. It was my first viewing. Wow. And he kept saying, I don't think you're going to like it, <laughs> but I did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I too had actually not seen it um, to to my great shame, and my dad was uh, obsessed with uh, Bullet growing up. We even had a he bought a special two thousand one Bullet Mustang at one point as Whoa. well. Yeah, nice uh, that came in the special green. He bought the one in blue because he thought it was less ugly. <laughs> but uh, it's really pretty good. You know, that was yeah. I think the big surprise. There were a couple of things I I had always kind of thought that it was from the early seventies, and when I heard sixty eight, I was like. This is actually not only good for its time, but actually a pretty good movie in general. And the car chase scene, really, that's the one thing that I had seen. And it is, uh, it definitely meets all expectations, meets and exceeds. Yeah. Let's put it that way. We'll get to our likes and dislikes, but uh, my initial thought was it's aged well. Um, I think problems that I had 20 years ago, I don't have with it now, not just because some time's passed and there are some just San Francisco-centric things that keep me interested. But I think movie making has kind of gone in a direction where this kind of more atmospheric movie sort of has come back in. And uh, I really dug it. Um, we're showing it on uh, February 27th at the Balboa. I'm hoping we get a really big crowd um, cheering really hard for that car chase and then booing emphatically when he steals the San Francisco Chronicle, which will be its own segment <laughs> later. Um, but I want to just get a little bit of history, and you guys jump in if there's anything you want to add. But 1968 movie, it was shot and released in 1968. Um, very first notice to Chronicle readers that this was even happening was December 20th, 1967, with Herb Kane. Uh, Herb Kane was all over this movie, and he had just a little one-liner about how Steve McQueen's coming to shoot his new movie, Bullet. They'll be shooting in the city the whole time, which which was kind of novel even back then. It doesn't happen much now, but back then, you know, usually people were maybe splitting time between L.A. and San Francisco. 
maybe getting a hangar and, and setting up some interiors there. They were going to just shoot everything in San Francisco. And um, little history, you know, the car chase, that's the big thing. Um, it jumps all over San Francisco. That wasn't something that they necessarily wanted. They early on were trying to cut a deal with the police and figure out um, how the car chase would go, how they would map it out. And the police said, we're not going to let you shut down a street just for a car chase. So you're going to have to do it in little bite-sized pieces. But other than that, they kind of had the run of the city. Um, 1960s, it's all over the city. Locations are fantastic. And uh, by all accounts, they had a really good time while they were here. I, I, I would say I would definitely have a good time uh, seeing some of the places that they were able to see. I mean, I was blown away by the fact that they were able to get inside the uh, what is now the Japanese embassy mm-hmm. or uh, the Japanese consulate. Thank you. And just some of the places that they went, you can tell how you can definitely see how much the city's changed, mm-hmm. but some of the things are just exactly the same. And I, I do, there's a part of me that loves that. Uh, so especially, you know, they've got these incredible shots of Knob Hill where he lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the car chases are there as well. North Beach looks so much the same. Yeah. Uh, it's it, They've got just such great shots and just classic. They, they really capture what San Francisco was at that time, at least to a certain part of San Francisco. So the consulate on Vallejo Street is in the scene. It's the senator's house, and there's a party in the beginning of the movie where he talks to Lieutenant Bullet about the guy. He's I didn't really follow Ross, that whole plot. Ross, that was the weird. the we should we should <laughs> we should actually mention the plot a little bit. It's it's a Chicago mobster of some kind is um, disappeared with some money, and Bullet's supposed to guard him, but then stuff happens to him, and there's a evil senator and. Yeah. And, and stuff happens. But. So his house, um, I was doing a little research last night. It was um, called the Musto House because it was originally owned by um, the Musto, Musto, I don't know how you pronounce yeah. it, family from Italy who imported mm-hmm. marble that was used at, to build City Hall and a lot of the famous buildings around the city. And then now has um, become the Japanese consulate. So there's a big Japanese flag out front. I've been to a couple of events there. And they have a big promo that this was used in bullet inside. Oh, as they should. Yes. Yeah. It's like the claim to fame. And that balcony is gorgeous because it sweeps around the outside. And you can see the whole bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's... Lovely. Yeah. I thought it was funny. They had two socialites inside that are having a conversation about growing roses in the Bay Area. And one of them lives in Sausalito and the other one lives in Orinda. And she's talking about the dry, hot sun in Orinda, how it's just so great to grow roses there. And it's so much harder in Sausalito (laughs) where they have fog. And I was thinking that conversation is very much of its time, but maybe not. Maybe maybe you would hear that same thing from residents of both of those places now. Uh, But I just thought that that was such a perfect kind of little throwaway conversation that really fit the sort of socialite atmosphere that they were trying to capture in that scene. Well, those, and the outfits with the, all the old ladies with the cat eye glasses. Oh, that was great, yeah. <laughs> and those were those were actual socialites. Um, when they did the, the screening, uh, uh, fundraising screening at the end, and all the socialites were invited, there was a, a little uh, uh, item in the Chronicle about how so many of them were really disappointed that their scenes were cut. Uh, and uh, uh, there were a lot of San Franciscans used. There were police officers who were used. I interviewed one for a 2003 story I wrote, just trying to get everybody who was still alive to talk about the chase. And, uh, um, you know, not only were they shooting in the locations, they were using San Franciscans, which was um, 
kind of something that I, I think actually informs the the movie a little bit. It probably makes it a little bit more authentic, which you lose in not having a top flight actor you gain and having someone who is an actual person who does that job, whether it's a rich, wealthy <laughs> uh, philanthropist or a, um, you know, someone working in the medical examiner's office. So yeah, they, they use San Francisco. Um, that car chase, uh, that's what everybody talks about. I think, you know, I've seen the car chase probably 30 times and I've seen the movie twice. Steve McQueen did drive, uh, Steve McQueen and Bud Eakins was the other stunt driver for, um, the Mustang. And, uh, and then Carrie Lofton, I think, was um, driving a little bit, but he, I think he was the guy who was in charge of fixing the Mustang at the end of the day. And you see this thing kind of teleporting around San Francisco. Where does it go? I, I, I got Portola. It's, I've mapped it out. It's but. got Russian Hill. It's Potrero yeah. Hill. Potrero Hill. Um, Daily yeah. City. Daily City. Which apparently is right next to the Golden Gate Bridge. It's, it, it borders it. It's always been right there. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if you've noticed. Um, yeah, I thought th- there's definitely a point where it, does teleport from Potrero to Knob Hill. And then oh, it during, teleports all over the place. During the scene, there's a sp- uh, one spot where he turns on, he does a U-turn on Cesar Chavez, um, then Army Street, yeah. and starts pulling up towards Potrero. And then the next shot is he is flying through the air and dropping down right in front of the church in North Beach. Yeah. And, <laughs> As you do. <laughs> These are big hills. Yeah. And there's a couple there's another scene a little later where all of a sudden he makes this, you know, crazy turn right in front of it's right at the bottom of Lombard Street. It doesn't actually get the shot of the windy part of Lombard uh-huh. Street, but it's right at the bottom of of that's that that windy part. And I was going, that is just not how that that no. works. But it's so much fun and if you can suspend that disbelief, uh man, yeah. it is something else. I noticed the camera angles were awesome. Like you were re- like in the car a lot of the time, and there was no background music, so you could hear like the screeching of the wheels and oh, the yeah. thunk every time the cars like went over the crest of the hills. Well, and and that stunt car actually just sold mm-hmm. uh, very recently yeah. for three point five million dollars, and the guy. Steve McQueen tried to buy it off of him multiple times, and he was like, "No, no, no! I know what I have," and it sold dents and all with the camera mount on the top that they used to be able to take those inside shots while he was driving. Yeah, wow. and, and apparently this guy was using it like a commuter car. Like he's driving <laughs> his kids to school in, in the bullet car. Um, back in 2003, I interviewed the um, the cinematographer, William Fraker, and Bud Eakins, a stunt driver. They had the most information like about the car and the scene. But some of the things I learned were that um, they used World War II uh, and Korean War technology to get the camera mounts in, and that was a huge breakthrough for them because they could mount the camera inside and use. There's a couple of really key scenes where they shoot through either the front window or even shoot the um, the the rearview mirror mm-hmm. with the bullet car approaching. Um, so there was a lot of kind of technology that uh, that played into it. Um, before that, a lot of chase scenes, they would start them slow and speed them up. This one, they said, we're going to film it in real time. And that was like a huge, huge thing. They had and they to were build. going over 100 miles an hour, right? Yeah, 100 and I heard 130 is what the cinematographer told me um, through the marina. That was the fastest. And they had built a car for him where he was kind of down on the ground. So there's a third car filming this that was specially built by Kerry Loftus, the 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 guy who um, uh, kind of the third stunt driver that a lot of people don't talk about and 
Fraker said he was just inches off the ground and just thought he was going to die. I mean, it was absolutely wow. crazy. Um, and then they're going along the marina, and then they wanted to use the Golden Gate Bridge, but they weren't allowed to. The San Francisco was really tight with them. So all of a sudden they show up in kind of Daly City, Brisbane area, and then work that big final crash, which they thought was a disaster. They had rigged up um, this car to... Um, kind of there was a car that it was hooked on to and then they flip a switch and then the car that the uh the bad guys are driving is supposed to go into this oil thing and it went wide you can actually see the car go out the back through the explosion it's it's very when you watch it you go oh that special effect was <laughs> that very not good yeah but you know, it's again 1968. It I'm, I'm going to give it a little bit of leeway. Yeah, and and after you're you know watching that incredible chase, you're not going to complain about anything. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, Honestly, it still looks better than the special effects in the uh, first three uh, George Lucas Star Wars prequels. Yeah, so. there you go. No, I mean it's it's fantastic. Um, Bill Hickman, the driver, he he had an acting part, but he actually drove the entirety of uh, the the. I think it's a Dodge Challenger, the 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 lead car, and um, and one more little thing. There was one tiny scene that was filmed in L.A., but um, and I had two different people tell me it was like the absolute key scene that put it all together. Which is they're kind of doing a little cat and mouse slow thing, and then they're following Bullet, and then they look in the rearview mirror, and Bullet is behind them, mm-hmm. and then there's this one scene where you see the seatbelt, and the seatbelt clicks. And uh, William Fraker told me that was the key. It was like, because when that seatbelt clicks, it's like, you know, it's on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that the beginning. And then all of a sudden the engines start going and it's fantastic. So the morning after I watched it with my in-laws and my husband, we showed just the car chasing to my little boys. Um, I don't think they would like the whole movie, but <laughs> they were riveted for those 10 minutes, like big eyeballs. They loved it. Yeah. Well, I mean, how can you not be? You know, not, not only is the, is it's just, the shots are amazing, but the cars are so cool. Yeah. I mean, come on. We don't yeah. see anything like that these days. So, I mean, it's what? Uh, it's a 1967 uh-huh. uh, Mustang GT Fastback, Fastback yeah. um, with a, a 390 in it, which is you know a 6.5 liter these days. And the thing just flies. Yeah. I mean, and it was so good that it wasn't an actual police car. Yeah. It oh, it yeah. so much cooler. Yeah. Which is actually something that Herb Cain complained about, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, there was some, there was some Herb Cain's sour grapes involved in all this. Also, you know, a lot is is written about um, the inconsistencies. They keep passing the screen bug. The the Dodge Dodge uh, that he's chasing loses, I think, five or six hubcaps total. If you if you yeah. count them, including the end explosion, it loses more than four hubcaps. Um, there's a lot of scenes where if you look really closely where the Mustang was damaged and then it's not damaged and then damaged because they've shot them out of sequence and they would wreck these cars and then the 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 team that was trying to fix them up would overnight just like transform them back. But there are a couple points where they couldn't really do that. Mm. So um, there's some inconsistencies there that are also I think it's kind of become part of the fun. Mm. I don't I certainly don't think it's a drawback to the movie. Yeah. Oh, no, not at all. And I, I think there is even a scene where there it's before he's even in the chase. There is a dent in the car that then disappears and then comes back. And you see where it came from in the chase. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the chase is fantastic. 
non-chase stuff, let's talk about things that work and things that didn't work. What did you like about the movie? Start with you, Heather. One thing I liked was that the um, creepy senator was a man, and now we've had two female senators in California for decades, and they don't do stuff like that. Yeah. I also loved the scenes when they're hiding that weird guy in the creepy hotel on the Embarcadero and you can see the old Embarcadero freeway and um, I think you know I I take digs at city hall politicians all the time for not getting anything done but I think props to Art Agnos for getting that freeway torn down because the movie reminds you of how awful it was imagine if that was still there blocking the ferry building now that is such an open beautiful space yeah, and you know that may very well have cost him his reelection. So, <laughs> but now we have a lovely environment. We do. Now. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and the things that I loved about it, besides the chase, I did love the interior shots of of these classic buildings in San Francisco. We have the interior of the Mark Hopkins, and we have the interior of what is obviously a San Francisco apartment where Steve McQueen lives. Um, that's you know kind of perfectly decorated for the time, and I just. I mean, I'm a history buff, so I love the fact that we got these shots of Union Square, um, that we have these shots of Knob Hill, um, the the outside of the old Mark, or it's still the Mark Hopkins, but the with the you know the the bellhop that looks like a Hessian soldier that's secretly calling the uh, the mobsters to tell them <laughs> that he's <laughs> that he's there. I mean, there there was just so much great about it, and I think in general, uh, just. The plot holds up pretty well. I did love the SFO scenes too. Um, the the whole oh you get to check in at the counter for an international flight. Um, you know everybody is wearing suits in the plane. Yeah. It's like such no, a no metal detector. Yeah. yeah, apparently you can just run onto the runway if you really want to <laughs> um, with with your gun. Yeah, <laughs> just lay down on the tarmac and hope that the plane goes over you. Yeah, yeah, that was him by the way. He 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 he. That was not a stunt double. Um, and. Uh, uh, Somebody asked him, it was a quote in the Chronicle, you know, why didn't you just get a dummy to do that? And he's like, well, they did. (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, suave guy. I love the locations, too. I love, you know, not just the locations, but the 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 match of the locations and the people that are there. It just feels so authentic. Um, A lot of people right now, there's a movie Uncut Gems that they're talking about how, um, you know, the the Safdie brothers who directed it used a lot of real people in the movie and they're talking like this novel thing and I'm like that's like bullet I mean you know Robert Duvall and and Norman Fell there are people who are from LA but um you know you you go out to North Beach where all the strip clubs are and he goes to meet his informant and I'm like yeah that looks right Right. that that looks like an informant would have looked like in the 1970s out at the strip clubs at North Beach. I was struck by how little the whole northern part of the city has changed in the past 50 years like North Beach looks pretty much the same Union Square Knob Hill there's been so much change south of market but in terms of that quadrant, it looks very similar. The Japanese consulate's just up the street from my apartment, and the shots of the marina and and Russian Hill and, and Knob Hill and, and Pacific Heights, exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's like it has not changed one bit. Um, I think there was even a spot that you could kind of catch a glimpse of where the parking garage is on Knob Hill that's mm-hmm. supposed to eventually be the Crocker Hotel, according to the sign that is faded that is still on that parking garage from 50 <laughs> years ago. That's uh, and I was just thinking, God, it's so, so similar to what it was. Um, speaking of Robert Duvaldo, has he been 40 forever? 
Yeah, because <laughs> I guess I actually looked up his age when I saw him in this, and I think he was 38. I went, God, he has looked exactly that age for almost as long as I've been alive. It was until I saw a very recent shot of him that I went, oh, he's not still 40 years old. He was only 38. He looked older. There's I know, been man. that meme going around Twitter about how stars used to look older than they do now at the same age. Have you seen that? <laughs> I have not and seen he's that. he's an example. Yeah. Uh, Steve McQueen is uh, is actually 36 in Oh, this. wow. He looks older than that, and too. And he looks older than that, too. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I thought it was funny that um, he is 36 and his girlfriend is 24, uh, yeah. which is probably very fitting for Steve McQueen. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But Brad Pitt now is in his 50s, and he looks younger now than Steve McQueen did. In Bullet. Well, Steve McQueen aged quickly. If you go from like Bullet to like Papillon, you know, I mean, it. Yeah. But he, he, it was a rough 1970s for Steve. Well, McQueen. and he passed away <laughs> at 50. That's yeah. the thing. Oh, wow. So yeah. it's like he aged. You know, you, you can tell that he's uh, he looks relatively youthful in this, but hmm. it's crazy to be 36. You know, it's like yeah. grizzled veteran on the force. <laughs> well, I, I I think the locations are fabulous. Um, I think the knock on the movie is that it doesn't make sense, but I think like that's okay now. It, you look at it, it has this like heroism in the face of hopelessness vibe, the the senator, there's sort of this, this specter of evil going on, but you're not quite sure where it is or if they're gonna get away from it. There's not like a clear good guy, bad guy, not a lot of exposition, but that's like television today. That's like a true detective. You know, there aren't a lot of easy answers in Fargo and True Detective and Cone Brothers movies. And this feels kind of like that. So I think it's like aged into 2020 really well. I mean, I, I watched it and his performance is a little flat. Um, I don't know if he knows that he's in a good movie. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a Steve McQueen <laughs> thing, but he's he's pretty... He's not emoting a lot and, you know, he's well, just kind of looking cool. And but. And something i think speaking to the 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 kind of ambiguity of things um there's that point where um is it jacqueline Bissett? is his girlfriend mm-hmm. uh, jacqueline Bissett like runs out of the car and she runs over and starts crying next to candlestick and she's like i don't understand you're not reacting to any of this at all do you let anything reach you i mean really reach you or are you so used to it by now that nothing really touches you living in a sewer, Frank. Day after day. With you, living with violence is a way of life. Living with violence and death. And it gets at the whole sort of what sort of mental state you have to be in to be able to see the sort of violence and everything that he's supposedly dealing with every Mm -hmm. day. So, you know, he just goes into this room and this woman has been killed and he's like, okay, gotta call the the examiner, and she sees it, and she completely breaks down. Yeah, do and you let anything reach you? I mean, really reach you? You're living in a sewer, Frank, day after day. Yeah, yeah, spe- yeah. speaking of scenes that didn't age well. <laughs> yeah. um. Is it me, or did every female actress in the 60s have that weird, really breathy, fake voice? Like, yeah, The bit. voice coming out of her head did not seem like that was her real voice. There was a practiced voice that they used to do that was supposed to be essentially a Midwest accent. There was either Midwest and then there was another one that was sort of like a mid-New England accent. Mm. And they would have actors practice it. So first it was the the news broadcast, you know, the famous old newsreels where it's the uh, the news of the world. <laughs> and, and then they would also have women practice that. And, and I think that that's where a lot of those, vo- that sort of forced yeah. breathy yeah. voice. So kind of, dramatic. It's just so much <laughs> is, is happening inside of me. 
<laughs> well, that, I did like you a, could see the Hunter's Point crane. I did that. love oh, yeah, that. And yeah. I, just, I just wrote a loving tribute to that, so I was happy to see that. Um, and if you look at it, it's actually looks like it's in operation. It's got stuff hanging from it. So that's well, it, cool. it looks like it's right after they had put up the spot to launch the missile. Yeah, that was 59. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a ways after, but it was before they shut it down. So Hunter's Point crane, uh, not used in a lot of movies. That wasn't an Ant-Man. So uh, yeah. let's, let's go with the negatives. Uh, I think it's humorless. There, there's some really. I mean, there, there's no attempt at humor anywhere, really. Um, yeah. It's kind of, kind of slow. Uh, there are points where, like, he'll be in the hospital and and doing something really simple, and they'll just show him like walking all the way down the hall and like opening the door. I mean, it, it, it's not building suspense to me. It's just like, okay, get on with it. I know what's happening mm-hmm. here. Um, I think there's a lot of slow moments. Um, they could have trimmed 15 minutes off of yeah, it easy. For sure. Not at the car chase, though. Yeah, the I think the 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 whole Jacqueline Bassett having the breakdown thing was not great. Um, I don't. Yeah. Necessarily that really think, pulled me out, and I was like, yeah, "What?" Yeah, is it, going it's, on? it really kind of comes out of the blue, too. Yeah. Because um, she just seemed like the cool girlfriend, and then all of a sudden, yeah, she's cool. She's apparently independently wealthy because she owns a brand new Porsche. But she can only afford shirts, no but pants. She, <laughs> yes, <laughs> she can never wear pants. Exactly. <laughs> um, I also I thought you know not to totally rag on the special effects, but when it came to the sort of grotesque, over the top violence of yeah. the gunshots, I thought that was something that was like oh, okay, a little bit. Um, the the assassins were something that I found kind of funny. Like the assassin was wearing a Burberry coat. I don't know if you noticed this oh. yeah. while he's doing the assassinations. And they're all very ham-handed. Like, he clearly just doesn't take very good shots. And then he goes into the hospital and has to try and, you know, murder the guy, but has like an axe, you know, an ice pick with him. And then the nurse yells out and suddenly everybody's, you know, up in arms <laughs> yeah. and there's a chase scene. And you're like, I don't really know. It seems like if the mob's hiring assassins, they might be a little better at it than this. But And if Bullet was such a great lieutenant, why did he leave that horrible... Um, cop to guard him and then they just let him in and to the hotel yeah, he's always like five him. minutes away I, i'll be there in five minutes right when all the stuff's happening yeah. so i i also think like um there's a whole kind of body switching thing i don't want to give too many spoilers because there are some but there's a whole thing involving switching a body that everybody involved with it is so casual about it, yeah. including a doctor. That it's was like, my big. I was going to say This is medical that. malpractice. <laughs> You're like switching charts and saying dead people are alive, and they're so casual about it. I'll do that for you, Frank. Yes. And it's like, that's your job. And he's just a lieutenant. He's not the chief. I w- I'm like hoping that someday I find out that a body has been smuggled out of SF General. Yeah. Well, And then the chief. And the doctor allowed it. The chief Front finds page. out about it, and he's like, oh. Yeah. Whatever like, you want, Frank. He's like, I put you in charge, Frank. <laughs> if you, you did a good job, Frank. <laughs> if Frank imagine a world yeah. where where Dirty Harry had Frank Bullet's chief and could just get away with anything, and then Frank Bullet had Dirty Harry's chief, who's just like, I'm taking your star. For, <laughs> <laughs> you did a donut on the. What one thing that I don't know uh, aged particularly well, and I but I do think actually was quite humorous, whether they meant it to be or not, is when they're all looking at the telecopier for what feels like five minutes oh, right. while they're waiting for the facts uh-huh. of the yeah. <laughs> of the passports. And it's just so perfect because it feels like a, a satire scene out of, mm-hmm. you know, office space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're all sitting there and just waiting patient. And it's just their face keeps panning from one <laughs> face to another as they wait for it to slowly print out in really low quality. It's yeah. like, yeah. Z- well, I'm a mom, so I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it's like Zootopia, the DMV scene where yes, it's run by the sloths. sloths. I yes. reviewed Zootopia. <laughs> Thank you very much. I gave it a little man clapping. Um, 
All right, a few things I want to get through here. Um, they're very important things, but I want to kind of get through them quick. Um, first of all, like my WTF number one, Bullet steals a chronicle. Like he goes up and he does search for change, and then he just like does a Fonzie and hits the <laughs> hits the chronicle rack, and then steals a chronicle. Subscribe, Bullet. You, why doesn't he have a subscription? That was even worse than smuggling a dead body out of SF General. Totally, totally. I'm much more upset about Bullet stealing <laughs> the Chronicle. He should have a Chronicle subscription. It's 1968, and he Everybody lives in Knob Hill. I mean, does, where is he getting his news? In his defense, he lives across the street from that market that's still there. By the yeah, way. Uh, and I'm sure he just goes across and buys it whenever he needs to. And apparently not. Apparently, yeah. he makes. He probably makes it up to him. Come on, you know how this Car- is. carry change, Bullet. Um, at least he didn't like take seven papers out and stack them up on the top of the rack. I was super upset about that. I hope that our, I think we should instruct our bullet crowd on February 27th at the Balboa to boo that scene. Yes. I hope they just do it on their own. I what mean, if you just on. actually bring in one of those newspaper stands and you make everybody buy a paper oh, as a condition nice. for going in? <laughs> nice. We probably have one in the, in the, in the basement, not too far from here somewhere. Um, okay, my my other thing that threw me off is Mr. Roper from Three's Company. Oh, in this movie. I knew that he looked familiar, but and I couldn't think yeah, of who he Yeah, that's him. That's okay. Mr. You're Roper. Right. So Norman Fell is the actor. He appears as a captain. I mean, like if he was playing like a strip club barker or something, I would have bought it. But Mr. Roper is a captain of a police force. I just couldn't. <laughs> he I just had couldn't that get same like befuddled that. expression. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't know what we're talking about. I, you know, I was going to say Three's Company. Three's company. <laughs> I mean, I know what Three's Company is, but I did not ever watch it. But I, I one thing I do want to point out is, is there's that scene where they're at Grace Cathedral. Uh-huh. And, and speaking of other unnecessary scenes, you know, his son comes over. Hey, Dad, come on. We're going inside. No, no, no. Hold on. <laughs> Got to talk a little more. And going, why couldn't? She, why does that need to be there? Like, we understand. Yeah. He walked up with his family. They walk away. We don't need the the... Right. Extra exposition on that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm with you. There, there's easily 15 minutes that could have cut out of this movie. A um, few things we'll be sharing on social media. I was digging through the Chronicle and found, and I think this might be a separate story, um, Bullet paid for the still existing olympic size Hunter's Point pool. Wow. Um, really? They didn't pay for the whole thing, but they raised, like I think, 55000 out of the 125000 It was a condition in Steve McQueen's contract. He apparently did this with all of his movies. He'd go and do something for a local school or whatever. That's and we have cool. this great wow. photo of Steve McQueen. Um, it's an examiner photo, but it was in the Chronicle, Sunday Examiner Chronicle, with Steve McQueen um, shoveling the first little bit of dirt at the Hunter's Point pool, and uh, Joe Aliotto there, and a uh, teenage Angela Aliotto on the side. I'm sure she would be happy to talk with us <laughs> I'm sure she would. about meeting Steve McQueen. <laughs> I'm sure she would, um, but I was thrilled to see that. Um, another little thing, so he did that, and he was um, actually, you know, a lot of the people that I was talking to who were on the the set with him said he was great the the police detective said he was great um the person who did the casting was talking about you know just how he was making time for everyone except the premiere where they raised a bunch of money um they asked a socialite to do it at her house she said no then they didn't invite her and then everybody started getting like totally freaked out in the society world so they had this premiere for the movie to make money for the Hunter's Point pool, and all he did was show up 
for like the very beginning of the movie and then took off before the movie started. And they had had like this pre-show and after show and it was all this like tribute to Steve McQueen that he didn't show up Aww. for. <laughs> yeah. What did Herb Kane get mad about? Herb Kane, I have a theory. So Herb Kane was getting leaked all this stuff and Herb Kane was all over Bullet. And then finally Herb Kane talked to Bullet and there's like a three paragraph, but it's not the whole column, but it's like a third of the column. And he was kind of snide in a way, and and uh, Steve McQueen's giving one-word answers in a way that I think Herb Kane felt slighted. Because when the movie came out, Herb Kane took it out. I'm going to read from you here. Uh, he did he did this whole kind of takedown of the movie. A lot of it, like, attacking it for not being realistic, and it's like, it's a movie. But... Uh, <laughs> In the famous chase scene, the lieutenant in civvies and driving his own car, a Mustang naturally, races around town at what looks to be 110 miles an hour, going through stop signs and red lights and scattering pedestrians while chasing another car going 111 miles per hour. This race goes on all over town from Russian Hill to Twin Peaks, and not one police car gives chase? Where were all our blue meanies? Having coffee at Enrico's? (laughs) He mentions, like, that Herb Kane mentions that it's unrealistic because uh, Steve McQueen's wearing his hair too long to be a police officer. And I'm like, well, maybe he goes undercover. It wasn't that long. Um, and then ends with this, the SF Police Department's a cappella choir may now join us in yet another chorus of Hooray for Hollywood, followed by the question This is a tribute? He was just like totally coming down hard on it. I think it's because Steve McQueen wouldn't talk to him. That's mm-hmm. my theory. But. Yeah, and I was going to say, the, the car chase scenes aren't that realistic. I have to walk across Lombard Street pretty regularly. And uh, the idea that somebody's racing at 120 miles an hour and scattering pedestrians is <laughs> it's not that foreign. Yeah, Totally. Right. And the fact that the police wouldn't do anything yeah, about exactly. it is not that shocking either. And it's like every movie. Right. That's like every movie. Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, how would you have a car chase? How would the car chase work if those weren't? You know. I don't know. I, I want to know what Herb Kane had to say about Blues Brothers. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like it's a movie. It's fun. Um, I think he was slighted because he was super kind of breathless when it started up. And then right after the point where he met Steve McQueen and was only getting two word answers, all of a sudden this movie's crap. I'm just saying. So Bullet, we're showing Bullet at the Balboa. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, February 27th. I want to talk about what other movies we should be showing coming up because Heather, we got a couple more slots coming up and a little bit of disagreement. Um, what are you thinking? What do you, what do you think's good for a crowd? Fourth movie night. We've done So I Married an Axe Murderer, The Rock, Sister Act, Bullet. Well, we keep getting the same suggestions, which is The Game comes up a lot. What's Up Doc comes up a lot. I've seen neither, so I don't feel um, qualified to weigh in. I'm realizing how few movies I've actually watched. Yeah. <laughs> the Game was a big... It was a big movie when it came out, and I remember trying to I, I always only caught the end of it on the VHS tape that had been taped from a television showing of mm-hmm. it where you had to fast forward through each of the commercials but it was a it's David Fincher isn't it yeah it's like an early yeah. David Fincher it didn't get great reviews but yeah it, it I, I think it's aged pretty well re, yeah, yeah. That, I've heard that it's when people look back on it they actually think it's better than it 
people gave it credit for at the time. It's kind of like San Francisco right before the tech boom, but it's not so old that you're looking at it and seeing like these big brick cell telephones. It's, it's not distracting and a lot of good San Francisco scenes and it's fun. It's like fun with a crowd fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as a movie critic sitting there, you might have your arms folded going, that couldn't happen. But it, it, with a crowd having a couple of beers, place like the Balboa, I think that's a lock. I think that's got to be one of our next two. San Andreas, we talked about that. Yeah, I oh. wanted to throw that out and I want to know what you think of this Eric Um, because San Andreas only came out you know four or five years ago Um, it's totally over the top the rock saving San Francisco as it gets destroyed by an earthquake and a tidal wave so I think you should do it because I went to the rock and I brought friends with me to the rock yeah and the rock movie showing I should should clarify (laughs) and as they walked out I kind of just waited to see what their reaction was. Many of them hadn't seen it. They went, that was so awesome. Because (laughs) especially with a crowd, it's, you know, it's a Michael Bay movie. It's over the top. You shouldn't expect it to be good. But it is. I did the same thing. Ridiculous movies work well in crowds. I just saw Hobbs and Shaw this weekend. Same thing. In a crowd at Castro Theater. So I really think it would be great to do something that is that sort of like over the top, just... It's ridiculous, but it's fun. It's got San Francisco in it. How much of San Andreas was actually shot here, though? Uh, Not a lot. And there's a lot of inconsistencies, but that becomes part of the fun. Like, there's one area where they're walking through um, what should be Montgomery Street. And then you look at the end of Montgomery Street where you would see not even Alcatraz. I mean, you would be looking out, you know, toward, what, Tiburon? And you see the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's like, no, that doesn't work geographically. I mean, it's kind of like the movie version of saying the word San Fran. <laughs> but I do think that would play well with the crowd. I think people would laugh at it and have a good time. Well, and and, and I think, what was it, a couple of, was it about a year ago now when you did all the movies that uh, destroy San Francisco? Yeah. So, you know, we could also get Godzilla in there. Oh, yeah. That's not bad. That's not bad. Um I think the game is one of our next two. I like San Andreas, and um, I like Axe Murder again. I mean, there were people who couldn't go to the screening. I want to so. wait a bit to do that because okay. it hasn't even been. A year. You know, George of the Jungle is also a fun one. No, it's, that it's, has it's never come out. It's, I mean, it's it's not a good movie, but you know, it's a Brendan Fraser classic. Willie Brown is in it. So he's you in get, everything. He's yeah. in that, and he's in Princess Diaries, yes. right? Those are the two big ones. The rain never comes down on Willie Brown. Oh, That's his famous Jesus. line from Princess I, Diaries. I, I, <laughs> I actually want to get him to talk about that, and then I don't want to get him to talk about that. I've been, well, you know this, I've been pushing uh, the Chronicle to do a political trivia night for ages, hosted by Willie Brown, because yeah. I think it would just be <laughs> an absolute blast. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we can make that happen. We can make that happen. I think that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> um, okay, one last promo. Uh, our movie on February 27th at 7 o'clock. Yep. And CinemaSF.com slash Balboa. Buy your tickets before they're gone. And our bagpipers coming back. Lynn Miller returns. The It's It mascot, <laughs> which there was nobody at our, I shouldn't even say that, but mm-hmm. our Superman matinee. Not a big crowd. It was scheduled during the 49er game accidentally. There were 12 people. <laughs> I counted. Yeah. Uh, but the It's It mascot was was big very hit. popular yeah. with those 12 people. They, they <laughs> love the It's It mascot. Yeah. So Norton went over well. Let's bring Norton back. Um, Eric and I are going to discuss who will be wearing it. Maybe it'll be, maybe we'll take turns or something. But how, how'd you feel about that? I mean, would you get in it again? Have you been having nightmares? Oh, yeah. You yeah. were our It's It mascot. It was not as traumatic as I expected. I did have the shoes on backwards, so wrong shoe on the wrong foot, oh. yeah. which is a little difficult. 
But uh, besides it being really like living inside of a furnace for a, <laughs> for a period of time, it is great. It is, it is, it's a lot of fun. A dozen people, people loved it. Yeah, dozens of people. You know, there were dozens of people that loved it. Um, and it's, it is a little difficult to maneuver because you don't know how wide you are and you really can't see outside of this little unibrow that you're looking through. Yeah. And then your arms are just directly in front of you in these four-fingered gloves that you can you can never really properly get your, get the right fingers in the right places when you're doing it. Yeah, but it is a lot of fun. You yeah. did a great job. Um, you did such a good job that I was maybe like, we got to get him back because <laughs> I don't want to wear it. But maybe maybe we can take turns, um, and uh, we'll have that there. We should have a different person inside, and it should be guess who's in the it's it. Maybe it should be you, Heather. No, I'm not. Yeah, why aren't you in the it's it, Heather? <laughs> because I'm not. I'm a serious journalist. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm going to let that one go and just <laughs> tell people to come to our movie. Thank you very much, Eric, for coming in and, yeah, and uh, came in with research, came in with uh, croissants and uh, and just fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thanks thank, for coming. Thank okay. you, Heather. I'll see you at the movie. Sounds good. All right. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests, Eric Kingsbury and Heather Knight. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. And Cable Car Bell Ringing is by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Read all our Total SF coverage and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com slash totalsf.